podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Wagon Wheel, recorded live on Spotify Green Room and available sometimes on YouTube, but definitely on our Red Inca podcast. Thanks to everyone who comes on to these chats to ask questions, all the sorts of things that everyone does, but also the Patreon people who support us. Obviously, if you do support us at Patreon and you go to the whatever the second tier level is, you can ask questions for these shows at the start. Also, it helps us make more podcasts. We're trying to bring in a third weekly podcast and obviously working on some other deals as well. So sponsorship and Patreon really help. If you don't want to do it regularly, you can just go to buy me a coffee. I don't personally drink coffee, but I will drink other things without actually I'll probably just pay the staff who work for me and they can then buy drinks. Maybe they drink coffee. But thanks to the sponsors that we do have, uh, obviously, Buttery Line T-shirts, although I'm not wearing one of those today, because <laughs> uh, this podcast is being moved a day f- earlier because I'm commentating on the you know, Ireland West Indies series for TalkSport 2, and that's all changed, obviously, with COVID and everything that's going on there, so my dates are all changed around. Uh, but big thanks to them, but also big thanks to Manscaped. Remember, if your balls are hairier than you want your balls to be, if you just want to trim it, just, you know, just a couple of millimeters off the top, just make sure that things aren't swinging around too much down there. You can do that with manscaped.com. 20% discount if you put in the code REDINCA, the name of the podcast, but all one word on manscaped.com. You get free worldwide delivery and you can shave your balls in a safe environment. Let's get to the Patreon questions to start with. James says, Josh Butler famously averages 47 batting at 6 and 27 batting at 7. I love that you said famously there, James. How much worth is there to a stat like that? So uh, very rare for me. I had time to actually uh, do 30 seconds of research on some of these questions. Uh, he, If you look at his first-class average, that doesn't stand up at all. Um, I think in first-class cricket, he average, actually averages more at seven. So that's when he's playing for Lancashire and for Somerset. So my guess is that that's just a, a random thing rather than anything particular. Also, it's very rare that I look at stats um, and uh, make a big difference between someone batting at six and seven. Th- there's little differences, obviously, but you know, it's not really about when you are facing the new ball or, and these days less so with reverse swing since what happened with Australia. Um so realistically, I don't think it's a huge deal um, to worry about that. It, that's probably more random. But also, if I was working with Just Butler, I think it's worth chatting to him about. You know, if he doesn't think it's a big deal, then you continue to bat him. Where, what's the best position for the team? Um, if he disagrees with that, then maybe it is worth um, him batting at six. It doesn't matter at all anymore, of course, because he just injured himself. Uh, Will says, in a weird way, does Bangladesh getting thumped add to their achievement in their previous test? New Zealand responded like the best sides do after being embarrassed. Yeah, I, I think it does. I, don't, I know that sounds weird, but we now know exactly how good New Zealand is and Bangladesh have, have learned that uh, by being punched in the face. And, you know, that was probably what we expected New Zealand to do in both of the tests. So I think in, in, in some ways it was, um, uh, they obviously caught New Zealand off guard. But you have to be good enough to catch a team off guard, right? And also, it's not like they bowled them. You know, it wasn't like when Ireland um, played against England and they rolled them really cheap on on day one and kept themselves in the game for a long time. Like, Bangladesh fought to be in front of that game consistently all the way through, didn't they? So, um, yeah, I certainly think that in in a weird way, being beaten the next game almost um, uh, validates it more, but uh, may not feel that way if you're a Bangladesh fan or player at the moment. And Ray says, we also need a tribute to ending with the Ross Taylor wicket. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I, um, I was talking to my dad. I, I don't think, yeah, I must have. Uh, I was doing a FaceTime with my dad and he was talking about, oh, it's Ross Taylor's third ever wicket. And the funny thing is, I've just been doing a research on that piece that I was going to write on him, which is up now on Substack and uh, up on YouTube as well. And um, at the time I was thinking, two two test wickets, this is such a, it's not none. <laughs> But it's also so few. Like, I wonder how many players would ever play that many matches and end up with with that. I think Alistair Cook is probably another one um, uh, off the top of my head. So I, I, it was something that I was looking at beforehand. The fact that it happened, um, I saw a couple of people saying that um, Eberdot um, may have gone out on purpose to Ross Taylor. I just think he's a tailender who saw a very average off-spinning delivery and tried to hit it for six, but it was glorious, wasn't it? I mean, those things don't happen very often. Um, you know, it... it, it 
for it to be that magical. So if you think of Ross Taylor's test career, it sort of finished with him hitting the winning runs in the World Test Championship and then taking a wicket in the um, um, to finish a test match. I mean, that's pretty, it's funny, if nothing else. It's very funny. I find it funny. Ray also wants to know about the women's ashes. Uh, predictions, which players to keep an eye on? To, to be honest, Ray, uh, uh, predictions, I, I would say Australia. Players to keep an eye on, probably, I just haven't had enough time to even run my eyes over the team. But there is something that I have been quite interested in. The women are now getting into the cross-seam delivery. The England women have been doing it for a little while. Catherine Brunt is apparently very good at it, but it's now really spread out. And Kate Cross has it. I'm trying to think. There's someone else who bowls it as well. Oh, Anya Shrubsall, I think, has just started to bowl it of recent times, right? And the interesting thing about that is that it wasn't a particularly easy ball to bowl um, in Australia before um, until a couple of years ago with that reinforced kookaburra seam. And that's made the wobble ball far more, well, it's made it far more important everywhere in the world, certainly, but even, even, even more so in Australia where the balls tended to go a lot softer than in other places. Uh, so I, I'd be really interested, and, and I know the Australian women have been working on it as well, so I'd be really interested to see if um, there's a, a more wobble ball um, shenanigans in this particular series. I think we'll see both teams try it up front in the one days and the T20s, maybe more so in the one days. T20s, doesn't, the ball just gets hit out of shape so quickly that it doesn't seem to matter as much. But that's the thing that I'm really, really interested in um, because we've seen what an effect it's had on the men's game. And we've seen it slipping very slowly into the women's game. But now with those kookaburra balls slightly reinforced, um, we might actually see more with that. So very fascinated to see uh, how that comes about. Uh, but thanks for your question, Ray. Avi says, should Ruth start opening for England, given that he already practically does from the newish ball, and England look for decent middle-order batters? I have heard this before. Obviously, Root did open for England. I think he has the second-best record um, of any England opener um, other than Alistair Cook in, well, since Strauss retired. I do get your point. He doesn't want to do it, and I think that's kind of important. He's also a fantastic number four batter. Um, he didn't even want to bat at number three. I, I feel like it's a. I can understand it from a tactical point of view, and I can certainly understand why you've asked the question, Abby. But I can also think, is it really worth going to root and, and doing that? But that what I would say is I think it's probably easier for England to find a number four batter who averages... 35 to 40, then it seems to be for them to find a top two or three batter who averages 35 even, 30 to 35 um, in some cases. Um, so I do understand it from a tactical point. I don't think they'll do it. Uh, uh, you know, the, the same, you know, you you could make a very good argument for Chris Wokes opening the batting with Steve Smith, uh, with Steve Smith, with Joe Root, um, honestly. But there's a million reasons why I don't think it would work and I don't think they would do it. Um, Steve, Steve, Steve says, any good books or coverage of Kerry Packer's cricket you can point me um, in the direction of? Well, probably the best one is um, Gideon Haig's book, of which I've just forgotten the name. Uh, but if you're putting get Gideon Haig, Kerry Packer, uh, you can obviously find that. Uh, if you want to find the miniseries as well, which was loosely based on, on Gideon's um, book, that's called How's That? Um, and also of recent times, um, uh, Dan Bredig wrote a really long-form article on Kerry Packer and... Don Bradman's relationship or maybe Cricket Australia's relationship. Um, it's a really good piece anyway, but I, uh, those are probably the, the sort of uh, the gold standard pieces on Kerry Packer. Um, and uh, you certainly uh, you certainly learn a lot from, from those particular pieces if you want to go out there. For those who don't know, Kerry Packer was basically the person who gave us white balls and coloured clothes and made one-day cricket. Basically took it from like a weekend sport in England and, and made it, well, eventually, probably the more dominant um, form, although obviously now uh, T20 cricket's completely taken over. Um, but yeah, I, and one-day cricket probably strengthened world cricket because it allowed for a lot of poorer teams like Sri Lanka and if, even teams like India who were struggling in the 80s, um, uh, Pakistan, New Zealand, to just play a lot of cricket. And Kerry Packer had a lot to do with that. Australia played the Tri-Series, even the odd quad series, I think, um, as well. Uh, and it, it really has developed cricket, but it was also, you know, it almost tore cricket in half. Uh, the Australian team was completely decimated by it. So um, really interesting for anyone out there who doesn't know that much about Packer. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've – oh, it's probably covered in my book, Steve, but it's probably not particularly well. There's a couple of nice bits in it. Um, uh, Neil says, the cricket fraternity, especially ex-players, regularly make comparisons with players from previous generations, usually to show state how previous generations were better. 
However, uh, how useful, informative actually is this? Cricket has changed so much. To make these comparisons is often pointless. Obviously, comparing players in the same era may be more straightforward, but can you definitely say what an era is? <laughs> can we say that we are currently in a wobble wall seam era? Yeah, I think we can say that. I think I have said it, <laughs> uh, Neil. Uh, yeah, look, it's there are some things that say the same, and there are some things that change. I think that is a very, very fair. Don Bradman, if you took Don Bradman at 20 or 21 and you dropped him now, I think he'd really struggle in, in test cricket as it is now. Whereas I think if you dropped a 20 or 21-year-old um, in the old form of cricket, I think they'd do much better, even if they weren't anywhere near as good as Bradman. And there is a natural evolution in these things. And so we know that, you know, if you look at the old footage of fast bowlers from the late 1800s, early 1900s, that Victor Trumper were facing and that Jack Hobbs were facing. It's not the game that we play today. Um, Clary Grimmett's a perfect example as well. If you look at the great Clary Grimmett, who had an incredible career, watch, you know, try and find footage of him bowling. I mean, you, I reckon a lot of club crickets would back themselves against Clary Grimmett now. I still think he'd get a lot of them out because he was obviously incredibly skillful. But, but yeah, I think, um, I really do think it's a, uh, What's, what's the best way of putting it? I, I really do think that it is a different game in every generation. Um, they did a similar thing, Neil, actually, with NBA players recently where they were talking to the NBA players about, um, former NBA players, about how they would go in the modern game. And most of them said they would do better now. But if they were just dropped in from the old game, they wouldn't. And that's because the game has got, the bowling is faster, the spinners are faster, People hit the ball hard. All those sorts of things have happened. Professionalism and, you know, the way that people think about cricket. The pressures, the modern pressures, you know, of having a 24-hour news cycle. You know, there are a lot of Indian cricketers who lived in a great period to be an Indian cricketer, realistically, compared to this one. You know, and, and that's the case with everyone, you know. Um, uh, the underarm incident compared to the sandpaper incident, you know, if you look at uh, the, the way that it spread and... Um, uh, and everything that happened and, you know, stakeholders and all, all these sorts of parts of cricket. Um, so, but, but there are things that we could get, like there are types of cricketers that obviously keep popping up. So Ben um, uh, Cat was a conditions-based spinner, uh, the way that India used him. That, we see that more and more in, in modern cricket. Lyric Constantine was very similar sort of cricket to, a cricketer to Andre Russell. You, there are things that you can compare players, especially when it comes to types, maybe how they are successful and all these sorts of things. But if you're looking at quality, generally you would expect the quality to go up and up and up the way that has in every other sport, um, even if that's not how the former players always see it. And uh, I can understand them not seeing it that way, and, and and that's very fair. But, yeah, personally I would think that's that's how these things go. But thank you to everyone from Patreon. All right, what have we got here? Drew, are you there? Drew's got a picture of him with John T. Rhodes. It's quite a flex. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, uh, I've got that picture in an under-19 trial with him. Oh, lovely. Where's he coaching now? Is it Sweden? Switzerland? Somewhere like that, isn't it? Sweden. It's Sweden, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. The Switzerland team is starting to get serious as well. So I, I got the, my SWs confused. What was your question, mate? Yeah, so if you've been watching the Ashes lately, um, you might have seen Perry drop a few catches. Mm. So do you think that they okay, should switch him for dropping with for the next set. Oh, sorry, you just dropped out at the end. You said switching him with who? English. Uh, look, I would have picked English beforehand. I think he gives the Australian team things that they don't have. Uh, I'm re really, really interested in him as a player. So I suppose I'm the wrong person to ask from that. But I don't think you drop Carey on the on the basis of a couple of uh, of fumbles. I think with Carey, what they it's it's almost. They almost see him as a high character player. So they know that, you know, he's never going to average 40. And uh, they know that his wicket keeper is not going to be perfect. But they think that in, in certain situations, you know, he's the sort of guy that can get hit in the head and, and bat on um, uh, without being emotionally stained uh, by it. They, they think he's the sort of person that I, I don't know how much you know about Alex Carey, but he, he was a professional footballer first. So very, you know, the ability to change professional sports and still make the top level of your, of your um, uh, next sport is. Very hard, very hard thing to do unless you're someone like Deion Sanders, someone, you know, ridiculous like that. Um, so th I think they've got a lot of respect for him. I think it was a mistake just because I don't think his high end is very high. But I think after Tim Payne, they're thinking maybe if we just get another Tim Payne-like person, um, you know, a solid, a solid player 
uh, that is a better bet than maybe taking a risk on one of the other wicket keepers. But it's not the direction that I would have gone if I was uh, if if I was involved. Um, but but I wouldn't drop Carey now based on that. Does that make sense? Yeah. But instead, wouldn't you go with someone like Matthew Wade, who you've tested? Oh, definitely wouldn't go with Matthew Wade. No. Uh, I mean, Matthew Wade averages under 30 in terms of match cricket. He's a far worse wicketkeeper than Alex Carey. He's old. Um, I'm not sure what you're getting out of him, you know, unless you think he's suddenly going to improve over the next one, one and a half to two years. Matthew Wade, and I was a huge fan of Matthew Wade when he was young, but how many chances has he had in, in this level of cricket and hasn't, hasn't taken them? At a certain point, I think you know you have to you have to accept that um, it's not going to happen. I think that's probably that's probably fair enough. Thanks for your question, mate. Thanks a lot. Are you there, Tess? Couple of questions. Firstly, <laughs> is kind of about biomechanics. Could you and should you teach someone to bowl like Boomer, like that style? Is it possible for most people, or does Boomer have some special quirk of his anatomy or physiology that makes it possible for him? He's got, he's got what I've got, which is hyperextended elbows. So I don't think everyone could necessarily do that. But I think the basic template of his action is probably doable for other people. But you're talking about one person's action, right? He's been grooved into that action physically for, for quite a few years of having bowled it. If you put another human being into that action, we haven't tested it. We don't know if it would stand up to other people's muscular you know, shape and bone shape and all that sort of stuff. Um, but this, I don't think there's any reason why other people can't bowl like Boomer. Um, But you do see in cricket, perhaps more than other sports, a lot of genuinely, uh, there, there really isn't another bowler who bowls with Shane Warne's physicality. Obviously, murally, even even if you look beyond the fact that a lot of the actions were um, banned, people didn't bowl like murally. There's never been another Jeff Thompson, et cetera. And you probably won't be another Lassif Malinga either, right? So... I do think that there are probably certain actions in cricket that are not particularly repeatable unless you grew up doing them. Uh, there was one guy in the LPL who had kind of a Malinga-like action. Oh, there, there are other people. There are other people with lower arms. I think. I don't think you'll ever get the the physicality that he had. It, it's a bit like you put it this way: you can copy Shane Warne's action. Right? I was there. I watched hundreds and thousands of people copy Shane Warne's action. But to be able to do it and have success at the top level, you need to match it with the physicality. And that's exactly the same with Malinga, right? So you need the fast twitch muscle fibers and the strength that Malinga and Warne had across their, probably their chest. So a lot of fast bowlers aren't, or, and spin bowlers aren't particularly strong across their shoulders and chest. They're quite often very strong in their core or their buttocks or their legs or whatever it is. Um, so again, you have to work out exactly what it is about Boomer's action that, that, is probably only going to fit people of his kind of body type, right? And that's why it's a bit tricky. And until we've tested it, and I mean tested it in other people, we won't even know if it is a repeatable action for for anyone else. Yeah. Uh, can I ask another unrelated question, or should I wait? <laughs> no, no, go ahead. You're here now. So I was, like, looking at some really old Australian scorecards. This kind of links into what you were saying earlier with Larry Constantine being a bit like um, Dre Ross. And I was thinking that, like, I mean, firstly, the fact that Clary Grimmett would like snap his left hand when he bowled his leg break to mean that people couldn't pick his flipper from a snap. Mm -hmm. And also the way like Bill O'Reilly, tall-ish, lots of limbs, fast for a leg spinner, kind of makes me think that they'd both have been amazing T20 players. Are there any other like really old people who you reckon would have thrived? Oh, they, look, there's heaps. I've actually done a video and oh, I don't know when it's going to go up. It might go up uh, at the start of the IPL now, but uh, well, I did a video, must have been last year, where I looked at, uh, like an all-star sort of uh, T20-11. So there's kind of two that you can have. There's one from the ODI era, which I think is quite interesting. So, you know, Lance Klusner and Viv Richards and these sorts of players. What's a macro? Um, but then you can go right back. So Victor Trumper would have been incredible because he scored at a rate that was so much quicker than everyone else. Gilbert Jessup um, is probably another player there. Um, I can't remember who my openers were. Maybe Hammond might have opened with Trumper. Aubrey Faulkner, obviously, a leg spinner who could bat. Um, not particularly fast bat, but... But you know, probably an ideal sort of four or five in T Twenty cricket. Um, uh, Leary Consul's team would have been incredible. Alan Davidson, oh, what a player he would have been. You know, what, what he had a bowling average of twenty, um, and he was a big slogger when he was needed to with the bat. Um, you know, him and was a Macram uh, in T Twenty cricket would have absolutely carved people up. Um, oh, um, but, but 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 what I did was I looked at sort of players from that weren't obvious as well. 
So how different sorts of players would have fit into T20 cricket? So Boycott, um, Gavaska, Glenn Turner, um, Lance Gibbs. So the players that you don't automatically think, but now imagine that, that T20 cricket was a major part of their career and they could make a lot of money off it. How would they have developed their careers to suit those sorts of things? So, yeah, I think... Cotton might have become kind of like a Brathwaite and that he would just not have played that. No, definitely not, because that's where the money is. Definitely not. I mean, Boycott would have followed the money 100%. In fact, I can tell you this, I can tell you this for a fact, Boycott used to bowl in one-day cricket, right? So more so, I think, for Yorkshire than for England, but I think he did bowl for England. Part of the reason was... Well, he probably... game where Canada were all out for like 20 or something. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, actually. But he bowled in a lot of games, right? And... There was, a, there was a little bit of financial reward in that, in that he was thinking, do you know what, I'm maybe not an automatic selection all the time because of the way I bat, and, and you know, and, and might have been because of that. But the fact that he adapted enough, in fact, Gavaska, when you look at Gavaska's record, so Gavaska's famous for being, for hating one-day cricket. Gavaska was an above-average one-day player by the end of his career. He may, they both started, don't, and don't forget, they started when it wasn't a real format of cricket. If they had started when one-day cricket was a real format of cricket, knowing that they got paid for it, they definitely would have invested in it. You put T20 on top of that. I, I think there are some older players who probably wouldn't have played. Oh, Richie Benno is another really good one. Uh, he could probably bat at, ooh, where would you bat him? you probably bat him at four or five. Um, uh, and obviously bowling would have been magnificent in, in T20 cricket. Um Fruk Engineer would have been another really good one, um, you know, a real hard-hitting um, player. So, yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of players. And it would, it's, it would be interesting to see how they would have evolved to have played in it um, because they didn't have to. And a lot of them had skills. Um, one of the players I talked about in it was Vidu Mankad. Was it Vidu Mankad? Vidu Mankad was quite a dour batter but known as having a lot of power. So especially when he went big against spinners. But he didn't need, you know, that wasn't a – thing that you needed to do in the 1950s, right? Um, and so that wasn't even exploited. So what would Vinu Mankad, who was good enough to open the batting and bowling for India, have been like in this era, right? And, and that's what I tried to do in this piece. Anyway, it'll be up soon. But um, thank you so much for your questions, Tess. Uh, we just got a couple of written ones here. I'll try and run through. Raghavendra says, Ross Taylor, as you pointed out, was amongst the best T20 batsmen before the boom of the format. Do you think he probably lost the ability to, to being one-dimensional and hitting sixes? Yeah, I do. I think that I think that he I think Ross Taylor came into it not fully plugged into T20 cricket, and then he got very good at it by basically just swiping across the line over and over again. And I think over time that method wasn't probably going to be consistent, and teams worked out how to bowl to him. I think they eventually bowled very full and at leg stump to him. I, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and it really did stop his um, ability to dominate. So, yeah, I do think um, that that played a part in him in, in him uh, struggling in T20 cricket. But I also think that if he really committed to it, I still think he would have been a fantastic T20 player. Um, Sylvester says, what is your view on cricket video games? Do you have a history with them? Any particular favourite? Um uh, yes, um, uh, I, I played Shane Warne Cricket. Which one was Shane Warne Cricket? Uh, I forget what that was around the world. Was that Sachin Cricket and Brian Lara Cricket? Um, I, I played Alan Border Cricket back in the day, uh, which was Graham Goose Cricket in other regions. Um, yeah, I was massively into them. Uh, what's the, the um, Cricket Captain on, on my phone um, was certainly something I played a lot. Um, me and my boys, we have the Wii, um, was it Cricket? Cricket 19, Cricket Ashes, whatever it's called, um, on the Wii as well. I played a little bit of that. To be honest, I've been really busy recently, and, and my son's always on the Wii, so I don't get a chance to go across. But both my boys want to learn how to play cricket on the Wii. They, they really like real cricket. Um, so, yeah, I was a massive fan of cricket um, back in the day. I think those were the major ones I played. Um, uh, yeah, certainly. I reference Alan Border cricket a lot, actually, um, especially when you see someone like Megan Shoots or Shikha Pandey swing the ball sideways. If you've ever played that that format of the game, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, just go back to the audio questions. Are you you there? What was your question, mate? So my question is, uh, which one of the over do you think gets the most wickets? And do you think setup is pretty important in uh, any format of the cricket? Like how, how much do you value setting up a batsman by a bowler in cricket? I'll answer that one first. Yeah, I couldn't quite hear you on the second one. My headphones dropped out. Sorry for just for a second there. It's a really tough one because when you talk to bowlers sometimes, 
what they've done is not exactly what has happened. I, I think especially for fast bowlers, there's a lot of there's a lot more random deviation than we probably give credit to. So Muhammad Asif and James Anderson and you know Bhuvi Kumar, those sorts of guys. Probably there's probably a lot more planning or Vernon Philander for sure. There's probably a lot more planning that goes into their individual wickets than there is for a lot of other just guys who are 85 miles an hour, 90 miles, 95 miles an hour. But essentially what you're trying to do one way or another is set up pressure, right? So whether you are exactly setting them up for the dismissal that you get them for or not, you're trying to get to their pressure points. And so it might be a case where you have bowled, I don't know, uh, 16, 16 deliveries uh, on a length just outside of start moving away and you move that and you bowl that ball that comes back in and maybe it's not even on purpose or maybe it's completely on purpose um, and, and you get the wicket. But then, then the other time, those 16 balls that you moved away, one of them might get the wicket, right? Or one of them might get away from you and it might be a little bit too wide and, it, you know, the player plays an attacking shot rather than all the defensive shots and you get a wicket there. But it's still brought about from that original pressure. So... Um, I think we can get a little bit carried away, but it's really hard to know as well. As I said, I've talked to bowlers where I've been positive that they have set them up and that was just like, actually, no, the, this was the plan and then this happened. So it's, it is a really tricky one, um, uh, but it's about, it really is about the pressure, I think, as much as anything uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, and what was the first part of your question? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I asked which ball of the over produces the most wicket, if, if you have any data on it or which is the most so likely to. I've never looked at it in test cricket, but in T20 cricket, it doesn't make any difference. In fact, I'll put it this way. In T20 cricket, you always hear this. It's a really big thing in TV commentary at the moment. They talk about starting the over well and ending the over well, right? Starting the over well was something when I first started doing analysis, all the coaches were talking about it. And I was like, I can't imagine this has any effect on the rest of the over. And so I went up, so I went and looked it up. And so if you hit a boundary off the first ball of the over, the rest of the over should go for, and I'm just making this number off the top of my head, 6.2 runs after that first ball has gone for four. If you don't hit a four off the first ball of the over, the rest of the over goes like 6.1, 6.15. It was so close when I looked it up. Um, and you realize that the, those sorts of things don't matter as much as you th as we maybe think they do. Um, but I haven't looked at that in test cricket. So I, I don't know if there's a, a possibility where things change. One thing, someone did amazing research years ago. And in fact, I should go and find it and um, uh, maybe, maybe make a video about it. It was so good. Someone did analysis of when wickets fall comparative to the time of the time it is in a session of test cricket. And you really under, and you really then understand how defensive teams get towards breaks um, and how unlikely it is to get a wicket towards the, at the end of a, session except for the one at the end of the day but i don't know of anyone who's ever done it per per ball um although you you might yeah i'm gonna, I'm gonna write this note down and then i'm gonna look it up and see if i can find anything in it and if i can you'll see a video actually i'm gonna write your name down because everyone always comes up with good ideas and then i forget to write their names down <laughs> and they go away and i can't thank them but yeah I'll, I'll have a look at it but my guess is it probably isn't that big anyway but it's certainly something that is uh it, it's very, it's, it's, it's talked about a lot. First and last ball is talked about a lot. And it's one thing I wanted to get through this coach. Oh, I didn't finish the anecdote. So I went back to the coach with that information and he said, yeah, Jared, it's not, it's not that I actually think it matters or anything. We just want them to focus for the first ball of the over. I was like, well, that's very fair. <laughs> I, I can't argue there. Um, very smart coach there. Um, although to be fair, he was very happy to have the information. So at least he knew that it was just a coaching tool and that it wasn't something that he had to mark before that. Because I think before that, he was marking it down um, a little bit more. Uh, thanks for your question. Thanks, Sarah. Question. All questions. Keshav? I'm Dave Burgett. How about you? Not too bad at all. How can I, uh, what, what question do you have? Uh, my question is regarding uh, IPL team director's role. Uh, recently, uh, uh, there was the news that uh, um, about team appointed uh, Vikram Solanke as uh, the team director. When I looked at his profile with uh, a coach, and uh, as of now, today, but director is some kind of a different uh, uh, role altogether, right? You need to look at the overall finance sales, uh, you need to look at different matters altogether, which is in India. But uh, he's based out of uh, England, if I'm not wrong. So, do you think uh, that kind of the appointment makes sense uh, in terms of business, uh, business and financial decisions? So, I would assume that the director's role is, and, and I don't know this for that particular one, but we we use the director of cricket role um, in cricket, which in other sports would be the general manager role. 
Um, so when you say that there's finances involved, it's more that you control the finances on the cricket side of things. Now, I don't know if every single team does this because I know there are some teams that do other things. I, had, I actually had an interview with an IPL team about this and they wanted me to be the analyst. And I was saying that I think I'd be more suited to being either the head um, of the analysis or uh, director of cricket slash general manager. And they were like, well, our general manager does, you know, profit and loss reports. And I was like, no, I, you, that's not the role that I'm talking about. The role that I'm talking about is every single dollar that we are going to spend on cricket, that is what I would... I would want to be in charge of. That's where I think, that's what Ashley Giles does. That's what, um, God, what's his name? The, the guy that used to work for Cricket Australia used to do. That's what Graham Smith um, did in South Africa, although some of his job actually bled over to the other stuff, but that's only because they didn't have any staff left as far as I could tell. So yeah, so I think um, that's the kind of role that you're looking at. So it needs to be, it needs to be someone, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cricket person, as we've already seen. Mohammed Khan did it for Jamaica Tallawallers, obviously. And we are seeing people come through with more diverse cricket backgrounds, but it is a cricket specific role, but you're not out on the field going, you, you, it's a suit role rather than a tracksuit role, which I think is how Andrew Strauss um, uh, declared his job when he worked with, with England. And that's a really good way of explaining it. Um, and uh, it's a it's a very very interesting um, new development in cricket, but it's kind of where cricket has to go because the chairman of selectors position is sort of untenable. Doesn't really make any sense. What you really want is what what you really want is a is a relationship between the people who have the money and are deciding on a tours and all those sorts of other things, and the coach and the captain and how they want to play cricket, and that's really what you're trying to meld together and i think that's where teams are going whether it be the ipl or whether it be international teams does that make sense mate yeah got it and what do you think specifically about the vikram Saranki and this role i can't pick up the name who's the person that you were saying uh vikram Saranki from england i think uh, so which team is he with uh, ahmadabad oh okay i didn't i didn't realize that actually oh that's interesting vikram uh was a coach so um a, a, you know, he was coaching Surrey, very, very highly regarded, very smart, very organized, very sharp person. He wasn't, he wasn't the director of cricket though at Surrey. That was Alex Stewart. So my guess is that he might be doing it in more the way that I think Kumar Sangakara has done it in Rajasthan, which is almost like a blurring of being a coach and a director of cricket, which is not ideal. Um, but yeah, I mean, Vikram Solanke is a very, a very well-respected person. I think that's a big loss for English cricket. I must have completely missed that news, sorry. But but very well-respected and very organized. I think that's a tough franchise to go into, if I'm being honest. I was sniffing around that franchise. I, I think it's a tough franchise to go into. But that seems to me like a very smart hiring. Okay, absolutely. Thanks for your question, mate. Uh, I just got a couple that have been written down. Just says, what do you think about this refreshed South African test team, how will they do in New Zealand later on? Uh, Just look, I think they're a bowling-dependent team, and so they're. Uh, I think they'll still have fluctuations in their results. Um, but their bowling is so good. I, I don't feel that much different about them than I did before. I still think their batting is... I, you look at... So I was thinking about this, actually. Um, someone else was chatting to me, one of my friends, about this. And, and if you look at someone like... Uh, Keegan Peterson, a lot of people are, oh, you know, maybe Keegan Peterson's the answer. Realistically, you need the best possible case scenario for Keegan Peterson, and you need three or four of him, right, to be successful. You know, uh, you need three or four guys who are going to average around 40 in test cricket um, with some of you, you know, with some of you know younger players and older players for experience kind of around them. I'm not sure I see that in South African side at the moment, but they're bowling so good. And it should translate to lots of different places. Um, you know, they still haven't used Shamsi um, that much in, in first-class cricket, and or sorry, test cricket, despite the fact he's got a really good first-class record. I think he played a couple of tests and was discarded. I really think they've got a lot of bowling talent, but it really is whether they can find that consistent batting lineup. And to be honest, no one is, so can't hold that against them at the moment. AJ, you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's your question, mate? Yeah, my question is specifically about Hardik Pandya, because, you know, they have been, mm -hmm. you know, the Gil Khan has also said that his action was brought from the beginning compared to just with Bumrah. So I'm, my question is that why didn't they change the action in the first place if they knew the action was brought? Well, there's a few different reasons. One, Hardik Pandey may not have wanted to be able to do it. 
Um, Hardik Pandey might have tried to do it and may not have worked for him. Hardik Pandey may have heard stories about many other bowlers around the world who's, who were told their actions were broken and they tried to change them and it ruined them. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Anderson may be the best possible case scenario of that. Someone who was told his action did not work, did not work, did not work. They changed it. He fell apart. He went back um, to his original action. And uh, Jimmy Anderson's done pretty well recently. So... You get this a lot in other sports. You know, you get it in um, baseball and, and golf with their swings. You get it in basketball with their shooting. It's a really tough thing to tell someone who's made it to the international level that their game is not perfect um, and that they are, sorry, not even that it's not perfect, that they're going to have to rebuild something as, what would you, as fundamental as being able to bowl. And I think in that particular case, that might have been the reason. Um, it might just be that he tried to remodel his action and it didn't work. Um, those things also happen as well. Um, and it might be that he didn't try because he didn't want to. He thought he was fine and it had got him this far and it would work for him. Um, there's many different reasons why that happens. And one more question, and that is that what does the factor of age plays in appointment of captain? Not always is 34. And we already mm -hmm. had some, we had K and Rahul, we had I'm not against Rohit or anything, but there's still always an age cap. Uh, yeah, but there's an age factor in the other direction as well, in that Rohit Sharma is going to have more experience than a younger captain. So age age goes both ways, especially with leadership, because you know at a certain point there, there are there are people like you know Cameron White and Graham Smith who are sort of like natural tactical captains at a young age, but even they struggle with man management skills, right? Because they're 21, 22, 23-year-olds when, when they get those positions. Um, so I think that that plays a part in it. Also, you're probably looking at how long you... What what, what have you appointed Rohit Sharma for? You probably uh, appointed him for, what, the next World T20 um, and the next Champions Trophy? If that's the case, Rohit Sharma's going to be around for those two tournaments, right? Um, if they think he won't make the World Cup, then that's a little bit different. Uh, a one-day World Cup we're talking about there. Um, although he probably will be around for that as well. So if that's the case and they're thinking, well, he'll definitely be around, then there's absolutely no reason not to hire him as captain. Thanks for your question. Just while Raj is coming through, Connor says, uh, what do you think of Nasser Hussain's comments saying actually should move away from Kent pitch as the conditions are too difficult? Shouldn't succeeding tough conditions prepare you for test cricket than dominating on flat pitches? It doesn't appear that. Well, hey, actually, Connor, it appears the opposite, really. It appears the best place to go is the best batting pitch or the most test-like batting pitch. Um, I mean, New Zealand went from having really tough wickets and built themselves in really good batting pitches. Since then, they've gone to a whole new level with their cricket. So I don't agree with that. I think what you really don't want to be on is a pitch that doesn't, isn't anything like an international pitch. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time down at Canterbury, but... The times I've spent at Canterbury and the times I've spent at Beckenham, which is their outground, I would say Beckenham is probably more like an international pitch than Canterbury is. Um, so I can understand any player uh, moving for that sort of reason. But but I understand your point. Um, I don't think I, I really. I, if you spend a lot of time looking at county wickets, I just a lot of time I, I almost feel not that the practice is pointless because you're still repeating your skill sets and all those sorts of things, learning and developing. But sometimes I do look at county cricket and I go, what is the point of this? That This player will never have to come up against this at the next level. Um, uh, and if they do, it's such a novelty factor. Um, so, no, uh, that's not how I look at that. Um, but it's a really interesting question. William, you there? Oh, oh there's William. Hi, Jared. Um, the, hey, firstly, having played at Beckenham a couple of times, I can totally agree. It's a lovely, lovely pitch. And um, <laughs> second unconnected point, is a good test match seemingly going on in Cape Town from the bit I've seen so far. Where do you see it going from here? It's an arm wrestle, this this whole series, isn't it? Realistically, neither team looks like they're going to score a big amount, which means that the bowlers are in charge. I find it hard to believe that South Africa are going to be able to do pull off another chase like that, unless the pitch helps them. And also, I don't think the Indian bowlers bowled as well as they could have um, in that second test. But yeah, as we currently stand at the moment, um, it just looks like a real arm wrestle game. Probably India looks slightly ahead, but it's uh, it could certainly go either way. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's, it's been a good contest. I mean, I, I'm, I've not watched as much of it as I am the Ashes, but it's um, I agree with the point by the previous commenter that this sort of slightly revamped South African side looks looks quite decent. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, you know, there was nothing wrong with their bowling. Um, you know, we, Nokia hasn't played, right? And he is absolute world-class bowler. 
the, the rate at which, when I first saw Nokia, the, the two bowls of recent times that I've seen, Asaki Mahmood and Nokia. Nokia thought, okay, he's fast. He's going to have a career, but there doesn't seem to be anything else to him. Asaki Mahmood, I was like, well, he's 87, 88 miles an hour. That's not fast, fast. And he doesn't do a lot with the ball. What you are seeing now, and I think this is partly to do with wobble ball, but also because those guys have grown up in a T20 era, is their ability to get learn new skills um, is so much higher. And there's so much, I don't think a Nokia wouldn't have been bowling back of the hand slower balls 10 years ago, certainly not 20 or 30 years ago. Um, you know, someone like Saki Mahmood, again, he would have been a swing bowler probably in a previous generation. And now you're seeing, you know, the wobble ball and the subtle manipulation of the ball that we weren't seeing from that sort of level of bowlers before. Um, so, yeah, I, look, I think South Africa is a fantastic bowling attack, but you cannot win consistent test matches and series over a three, four, five-year period unless you can bat. And this still looks like a very shallow batting lineup to me. Uh, it looks like a very working-class batting lineup, which in other eras is probably okay, but it's so hard to make runs at the moment, you probably need a couple of stars. Still better than England, eh? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, th I think, yeah, I think I'd have it slightly above England. England probably has, yeah, I also think their bowling attack probably travels better than England. Um, I mean, they'd probably love to be able to throw a Jimmy Anderson into that uh, particular South Africa attack. Um, they're probably missing, I mean, you know, Vernon Philander haven't gone, that that I I haven't seen anyone being able to replace Vernon Philander. But, but yeah, certainly I think, um, I think you'd rather be, you'd probably rather have, um, South Africa's travel bowling lineup. You'd probably rather have South Africa's batting lineup at the moment, but you'd probably rather have England's all-round ability, even with even with Moen Ali not um, no longer in the team. But you know, having Ben Stokes and Chris Wokes and Sam Curran as options, I think South Africa would bite your arm off for that. But but yeah, it's both of those teams are really interesting because they should. Uh, the two of them and probably Pakistan, although Pakistan could probably go beyond both of them. They should all be fighting for probably positions four, three to six. And, um, you, know, you know, a good run from Pakistan, which and Pakistan have a great um, schedule, um, could get them in the World Test Championship. But I think if you're looking overall, those those teams look, you know, three, uh, four, five, and six, probably they interchangeably, if you know what I mean, on the rankings. Yeah. Thanks for your questions, mate. Shalin, how you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, not so bad. What's your question? Um, I had a question about keepers. Obviously, you're having the debate about Inglis and Kerry a few mm -hmm. minutes ago. How do you distinguish between like a good keeper and a great keeper, apart from like the obvious like drops, uh, drop catch or like uh, miss stumpings? Because, like for example, a good keeper with really good footwork might be able to reach a ball uh, with their fingertips and drop a catch, whereas mm -hmm. a bad keeper with not so good footwork might not get there at all. Um, yeah, might run away four, and then you know it doesn't go down as a drop, like. Is there a way to factor all those things in? I've written a very big piece about this. It's called Point Fielders with Gloves On, uh, and it does talk about everything you just said. I judge wicket-keeping by footwork. If you're not regularly in the right position with your feet, uh, you can catch up with very fast hands, and that's what we're seeing a lot of batters with incredibly fast hands, but you won't catch up regularly, right? And that's where stumpings are, you know, a huge part of uh, of that. Um, but but it's probably more a thing back of, uh, back. So if you're not regularly getting your feet into the right position, it means you're probably going to have to launch yourself more often. When you're launching yourself, you're going to drop more catches than you are when you're standing upright. Um, and the same with with the footwork um, to the spinners. If you're not moving your feet at all to the spinners and you're just moving your hands, it means your hands are making up for things. It also means that you're not catching the ball under your eyes as much as you should be. So that's how I would do it. There's no metric, though, if you're looking for like a magic way. Sadly, you know, Crickviz have, you know, as far as I'm aware, probably the world leading fielding metric. Um, and it's really subjective. Um, it, you know, it tells, it's, it's more like the old era metric that the baseball commentators don't use anymore. Um, it's better than nothing, but it, it's no, it's, as you said, it, MS Dhoni, I, I've seen them, I've seen this on Crickfords before, like they're, they're people not saying that MS Dhoni has dropped a catch where I would say seven out of 10 other international cat, uh, keepers would have gone for that and he didn't even go for it. Um, so, so realistically, I think that is a, um, 
uh, I think that is a huge problem uh, w- with judging wicket keepers. And it also, if you look at Carey and Butler in this in this series, you can see the footwork problems that both of them have. Carey has this weird sort of hitch when it comes to moving out on the on on the um, to his right. Uh, Brad Haddon, I think, did a special on that um, on the radio. And and Matt Pryor's talked about uh, Josh Butler's wicket keeping a lot. Josh Butler has two different wicket keeping errors actually, which which is what makes him a little bit worse. The first is footwork. Uh, back at the stumps, but he also does this thing where because I think because he's such a good bat and has such great natural eye coordination, he never thinks that the batter is going to miss the ball because he's like, well, I would smash that for six. And if you look at him, he's never ready when he's up at the stumps for the batter to miss the ball, which is why he doesn't get any stumpings. And it's a really, really interesting uh, thing. And it's something you see with, with the, the, the thing I've noticed the most with backup wicket keepers or what, what would you call them? Non-traditional wicket keepers like Butler is they, they do that up at the stumps or they do this other re- weird tick where they don't run up to the stumps after every ball is bowled. <laughs> A.B. De Villiers never did that. It used to absolutely do my head in. It's just like the ball is bowled, it's hit into the covers, run up to the stumps. And uh, I saw for South Africa, A.B. De Villiers miss out on runouts just because he just didn't go up to the stumps. And th- those are the sorts of things that, you know, if you've been wicket-keeping your whole life and it's your your main skill, you think about all those sorts of things. And I think that realistically, that's where wicket keepers sort of go wrong. The good news for Carey and Butler is that there's so few pure wicket keeping specialists out there that, you know, it's like, like I'm very much old man shouting at the clouds here. It's like me and a bunch of wicket keepers who care about this. I remember talking to Will McPherson, the, um, the independent. He worked for the independent? No, he doesn't work for the independent. Oh, he's going to be angry that I said that. Um, Whoever Will works for now, <laughs> I should know that. Um, we had a fight once, and he he's, what, 10, 12, 13 years younger than me. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Wicketkeeper's always been like this. He hasn't come from that generation that saw the the more specialist wicketkeepers. And I think that in the future, you know, it will be me and a bunch of old wicketkeepers. It'll be like me, Darren Berry, and um, Jack Russell in a WhatsApp group yelling um, uh, about about this sort of stuff, and everyone else will have just moved on. So I just have one one quick follow up then. Like, sure. if you think about all those deficiencies about but uh, with that butler has, like, do you mm-hmm. think he's a good keeper or is it worth just no. like relieving him of the gloves? I don't think anyone's a good keeper. <laughs> I mean, the, the amount of people that I think is a good keeper, I'm the absolute wrong person to ask about it. I think Ritterman Saha is a good keeper. I didn't even think Tim Payne was a good keeper. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, comparing him to the wicket keeping, I, 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 and and part of this is where I grew up in Melbourne. I grew up watching Darren Berry. Darren Berry changed cricket games by doing things that other wicketkeepers couldn't do, like keeping up the stumps to pull rifle and taking a legside stumping. But Victoria used to keep their first slip about a metre and a half wider than anyone else because Darren Berry was so good with his feet, he could make up space but in that gap. And, and I, he didn't drop catches. I mean, you talk to Bob Taylor and Darren Berry, they would keep diaries. And like, if I can't remember, I think Darren Berry, I can't remember what his number was, but if he dropped five catches in a season and that was across one day and t- and um, first class cricket, he would, he would suggest that he had a bad season with the gloves, right? Imagine anyone <laughs> getting to that level now, right? And I mean, it's, that would be impossible for a modern wicketkeeper, I would think, e- even in the West, um, to be able to do that consistently now. Um, and and that's just because Darren Berry couldn't bat. He could not bat, right? He was a slogger. He batted, sometimes he batted eight, nine, ten for Victoria. Uh, he was plucky, but he was shit with the bat, right? And he was just dynamic with the gloves, you know, and, and we had in the, that era, you know, I, I didn't see Taylor, but you know, obviously Jack Russell um, was another phenomenal, uh, Prasanna J. Wardner. You know, we had people like that who were absolute specialists with the gloves. They were in the their national teams because they were, if not the best glove person, in the best five glove people in the country. No one is picking anyone because they're in the best five glove. Uh, even if, if someone like Saha is good, he still has to be able to bat to be able to get in. And as I've said before, Saha would probably like, you know, he'd probably be batting for England. He's, he, you know, he's not a dud bat by any stretch of the imagination. Whereas before, you know, the top five glove, um, uh, you know, people with the gloves got through. Thanks for your question though, mate. Cheers, Jared. Oh, Raj was trying to get through before and he's just written his one out. 
Uh, Chris Boris has just announced his retirement for all forms of cricket and straight away announced that he'd be taking up the coach role at the Titans. What gives players the merit to take uh, up coaching role straight away just because they have played the game? I don't think Morris has earned any coaching badges or qualifications. Firstly, Raj, I don't know if he has. So um, he may have. A lot of players towards the end of their career start to do that sort of stuff. I'm not a big fan of players who go straight from players to coaching only because I think you're right. I think you have to learn how to be a coach. I always worry about that as a situation. Sometimes it works perfectly because there are some players who are just ready to ready to be coaches, right? There really are. There, there are some players that I know in their twenties. I, I, there's a player I've got an eye on already. He's I like, and I was like, I don't think he's ever going to be a star player, but obviously he would be silly to become a coach now. But this guy is just certainly going to be um, a coach um, going forward. So. Um, Really, really interested um, in how that goes, but I'm really interested in how Chris Morris goes as well. Um, my guess is he would need to have a badge to get a job now. Could be wrong with that, Raj, but it's very hard to actually get a coaching position now without any badges at all. Uh, but but yeah, I'm not a big fan. I, you know, they're two different things. I don't know Chris Morris. I've never worked with any teams. Uh, I, I don't even think we have that many close friends. You know, so for all I know, he could be the most natural coach of all time. Um, but I will say this, uh, James Foster w- was desperate to get, uh, become a head coach. And in the space of, I don't know, what was it, 14 or 15 months, he had something like seven or eight assistant jobs because he wanted to fast track his knowledge of how to be an assistant coach so he could become a main coach. I much prefer that mo- method than what Chris Morris has done. Ikanth, you there? Hi. What was your question, mate? Uh, so it's a bit, uh, it's about being retrospective. It's a bit of mental masturbation, if you don't mind. So, uh, right now, T20 is in a growth stage and people are trying to figure out how it's played. Mm-hmm. They're trying out strategies and new approaches. So, that must have happened in ODIs and tests as well. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, trying pinch hitters or body line or whatever. So, can you tell a couple more and, like, what do you think about them now and what, do, what you would have thought about them at yeah, so I suppose test cricket, if you look at the lines, so we started off bowling at the stumps, and as pitches got better, we hung the ball outside of stump until we basically stopped bowling at the stumps altogether. Um, and we're just getting to a period now where I think we're probably going to start bowling a bit more at the stumps. So that is, I think, I think, I think the best way to bowl is like a combination of those two methods. So what we're doing now makes a lot more sense than what we did in older times where if you bowl slightly wider of the crease and you're angling in, you're making batters play because they feel like they have to play. Um, but you're not necess- but you're also keeping the ball slightly outside of their eye line, which means that they're not going to hit as many balls, but that you're still a chance of hitting the outside of off stump quite regularly. I think that's probably the best way of bowling. So that, that was one that was very different. Um, uh, we moved from swing bowling in test cricket to seam bowling so traditionally, bowlers bowled a lot fuller and they swung the ball. But as we know, the ball doesn't always give a shit. <laughs> um, and we really, when the West Indies started bowling faster with taller men specifically, that was obviously a much better tactic. Bang the ball into the pitch from a height. Tall people don't get shorter as the game goes on, whereas swing bowlers do stop swinging the ball as the ball gets older. So I think that was, um, a, I think that was a really good one. And, and I think we're getting even more towards that now. Um, and if you put in the wobble ball, that combination of those two things really should help tall bowlers going forward. Um, uh, what what have we seen from spin bowlers? Spin bowlers obviously getting quicker. Um, um, I'm trying to think what else spin bowlers have done. I suppose that's the majority one. Uh, the other thing is probably playing around a little bit more with the crease. Um I think TV probably helped with that. I think we always had spinners who played around with the crease a little bit and seam bowlers, but I think spinners and seamers um, as well. Now, you know, being able to watch Tim Southie, you know, you you just learn quicker. Um, and I think that's probably the same with spinners' speeds, like going faster and slower um, and really changing the speeds. Um, I think that, that has probably changed. What about batting? Um, uh, in test batting, there's probably a lot, a lot more now on rotating strike, um, uh, being fitter uh, and able to rotate strike. I think before um, you probably had players who were more boundary orientated or more ones, twos, and threes orientated. And I think now you realize that the best thing is to get 
off strike as much as possible. So that probably became a bit of a tactic. Obviously, Australia started attacking the old ball a lot more. Well, Australia attacked the new ball. Then they would get themselves to like two for 220, and then they would attack the old ball. Um, but then uh, uh, teams sort of caught up with that, didn't they, and started putting um, fielders out. So I suppose that's test cricket. One-day cricket, uh, I mean, the first thing that had to change was we had to stop playing it like it was a test match, uh, which took quite a while to work out. Uh, we had the movement towards specialists, everyone from Roger Harper, Michael Bevan, um, you know, these sorts of Chris Shrikant sort of uh, type of players. Um, uh, in fact, maybe that's not fair with Shrikant, but, but, but with some of the other sort of specialist sort of one-day players that we had come through, we certainly now are very much in a, in a mode of having specialist players. Uh, the big thing with, with one-day cricket was that you needed to be a lot fitter in the field and with the batting as, you know, and Australia probably, you know, uh, was involved with that specifically. What teams used to do really was get a batter to bowl their fifth overs. You can't do that anymore because batters will just absolutely tear a fifth bowler apart if they can. So you probably now need people with a bit more bowling skill, bowling that fifth um, over spot. But obviously, we had spinners and pinch hitters open the, opening the batting. We've gone away from that because we now realize that losing wickets in the power play is not as effective, and especially now teams know that they can clear with four, four and five men out later on. Uh, so that changed in one-day cricket. Uh, at the last World Cup, we saw not just spin bowled in the middle, but bouncers bowled in the middle by seam bowlers and sometimes spinners even push more towards the death um so that's become a real tactic in one day cricket yeah i mean i could go on and on <laughs> there's probably hundreds but yeah i think those are the main ones off the top of my head that i've probably written about before yeah, that's pretty cool to be honest but uh just a little follow-up before uh data and the and information was so widespread people had to like uh, go with trial and error or you know just their own approaches like how did they uh, validate what worked and what didn't and what uh, what were the types of errors that you noticed yeah well, i think the pinch hitter method is is an error um because we were sending in flawed bat so there's a reason why pinch hitters don't exist in t20 and i haven't quite got around to making the video yet but essentially that the main thrust of- um, uh, are you talking only a, a pinch hitters as openers or even in the middle order yeah, so there's a reason that pinch hitters don't work as a general rule, and it's because if you're sending someone out who is a, a limited batter, other team will work out what their limitations are quite quickly. So if you're sending out a guy who's really good at hitting 80, 80 to 85 mile an hour seam bowling, the team will bring on their spinners or their quick bowler, right? And suddenly now you've got a guy who bats at number nine because he's not particularly good and only has a couple of shots, not be able to play those shots because the ball's either at his head or it's above his eye line. Right. So, so we know that it took a little while for the nineties to really work that out. And look at what happens eventually. Sanat Jayasuriya, Adam Gilchrist, uh, Mark Waugh, Sachin Zendulkar. We ended up having middle order players at the top of the order. Right. And that's because they are well-rounded players and they do have the ability to, to play a bunch of different roles. And they were also more naturally attacking than traditional test openers because they're not traditional test openers. So you, in real, it took, it took cricket, what, uh, maybe three or four years to work that out fundamentally before it worked out that, yeah, what they should be doing is pushing batters. Um, uh, you know, there was that big point where everyone opened the wicket keep, uh, everyone opened with the wicket keeper in one day cricket until you worked out that again, that was before that, you know, uh, wicket keepers were specialist batting players, um, that they would be worked out. So, um, I think that you generally follow what is in front of you. And a lot of the pioneers, a lot of the pioneering has come through necessity, conditions, or an individual player. So those are the three different ways that you pioneer. So for instance, why did the West Indies stop using spinners? It wasn't directly at first to play four seam bowls. It took them something like 20 tests, 20 tests to pick, sorry, not four seam, four quick bowlers. The first 20 tests, they didn't pick a bunch of quick bowlers. They actually picked um, um, all-rounders, medium-paced all-rounders um, as their fourth option more often than not. It took them a long time to get to that. And the necessity really was that they used their spinners and India had made what 
whatever that huge chase was, 370, 380 against their spinners. And they suddenly realized their spinners just weren't of international quality at that point. Necessity, right? Um, uh, and then you look at, again, um, the West Indies suddenly had a bunch of these taller fast bowlers. Traditionally, it's really hard for a fast bowler to swing the ball because in order to swing the ball, you have to bowl it a little bit fuller. When a tall bowler bowls fuller, the ball floats and people ping them down the ground. Necessity meant that the West Indians had to bang the ball into the pitch, right? 1980s Australia, they're playing one-day cricket. They know they're not the best team. Bob Simpson goes, well, why don't we become the fittest team and the most active team? Necessity. They had to overcome a bunch of their flaws within their team, right? And that meant that their average players were now much more difficult for the opposition to handle because they were rotating the strike. They were looking for twos. They were fitter. They could run the whole game. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't score against the Australian team, right? So a lot of those things sort of come from those sorts of things. And then you've got individual brilliance. Like, I wouldn't say that John T. Rhodes or was a Macram or Adam Gilchrist changed cricket. But once you have that success of those sorts of players, you're trying to find your John T. Rhodes at point, right? You're trying to find your Wazza Macram. You're trying to find your Adam Gilchrist. Now, when you look through it, it's not as clear cut as that. Before Wazza Macram, there was Bruce Reed. So there was clearly a left arm movement coming one way or another. But of course, you would try a bunch of left arm quicks now that uh, Wazza Macram is great, right? Adam Gilchrist. Well, before Adam Gilchrist, we had Andy Flower and Alex Stewart, right? We were already on our path um, towards what Adam Gilchrist was, and the batting averages wicketkeepers were going up. But it suddenly meant that teams were like, okay, uh, we're going to have to find someone, and we're going to have to find someone, right? Um, and you see these sorts of uh, – I forget who the other player that, that I mentioned in that was, but um, – but you see, uh, uh, and John T. Rhodes, you know, you see that John T. Rhodes can positively inf uh, impact a game from point, right? Maybe we have players who can do that. And maybe that Austra uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, England, Sri Lanka, maybe at a certain point, who are the, some of the better fielding teams at times um, in, the, in their periods, maybe they went, okay, we're going to make you hunt like John T. Rhodes. You're already athletic. You're just not thinking about it the way that John T. Rhodes does. You know, and then you see Ricky Ponting come on the back of John T. Rhodes, right? It's those sorts of things that 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 sort of happen. So that so that is necessity, and then you've got um, and then you've got individual player brilliance changing things, and then the third thing is conditions based. You know, it really is. Um, there is there is a reason that traditionally South Africa, England, and New Zealand from 1960s onwards have struggled with spin bowling. Right, and that's to do with the conditions of of their pitches and how spin bowling actually goes um, in in those sorts of environments, right? And it's the same with pace bowling in Sri Lanka and traditionally in India. Um, and you know, Pakistan was the pitches in Pakistan do help seam bowling a little bit more. Um, that's not a mistake that that happens. So again, you're looking for um, that combination of necessity and conditions, right? That there was a reason that the Pakistani players reverse swing happened in three places. Pakistan, West Indies, and Victoria. They're the three places we've been able to track it back to before 1980, right? That is a lot to do with the conditions of the pitches, right? They helped it in those particular environments, in uh, you know, and Pakistan were the people who really, really understood it. The Victorians sort of understood it but didn't get it. It sounds like the West Indians knew it was a thing but they couldn't quite work out how to harness it regularly, Right. But again, that is a conditions-based thing. Um, and then and then you have the individual brilliance of Safraz Nawaz to be able to take what is a semi-formed idea and turn it into an international quality thing of which he then spreads that to Imran Khan and then fucking that changes the game forever, right? I mean, huge. So Imran Khan's individual brilliance comes from the fact that Pakistanis had to play on a bunch of flat wickets and their seam bowlers were like, oh, we're going to have to do something here. That then comes from the fact that the pitches helped it. So reverse swing is almost like a three, all three of those things coming together at once. And then by 2005, a bunch of English players understand how to do it, right? And that's, that's how things change. And look at how long that takes. That was, I reckon the first reverse swing was ever really written about maybe, well, ever from what we can tell, was ever talked about in the mid-60s. And it took 40 years for it to become a major thing in test cricket. The wobble ball has moved a lot quicker than that. But Muhammad Asif was bowling it 
right in front of our eyes 12 years ago, right? And not every bowler in the ball, uh, not every bowler in the world has even tried a wobble ball yet. The knuckleball. Uh, Adam Holyoke obviously had a version. Zahir Khan had a version. Really doesn't take over though until sort of Andrew Ty um, and the, those sort of the modern sort of guys come through um, with that. And even now, spinners don't try the knuckleball, despite the fact that Sun on Orion's doing it. Some things move quick, some things move slow. The Dusra was one of the fastest moving things ever. Um, the Rongan was incredibly fast moving. Some things just don't take off um, as dramatically as those things do. Yeah, fascinating stuff, mate. I'd become a patron just for that answer. <laughs> No worries. I probably answered about 20 questions in that, but that's kind of my, if, if you read my book, Test Cricket, it's one thing I really wanted to get a, across was how cricket evolves. Um, and I might go back specifically one day and actually write a, 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 a book literally on all these different changes that we talked about. So I will use uh, your question uh, to remind me of that. But I, I, it's so fascinating. And so much of cricket writing was so fucking colourful and, lit, you know, with literature and poetic and it's just like just tell me why Sid Barnes is taking wickets you fucking asshole um and and you know and that's why I look I'm I'm probably a lit you know more more towards that literary bend of my style of writing like I was a fiction writer not a non-fiction writer but I also understand that at a certain point we have a a duty to tell people how people are doing this thing on the field um and it helps you know writing and, and you know, people like flight and leggy and cricket with ash and you know uh sid monger's some of sid monger's pieces and you know getting to the nuts and bolts of this it actually helps the cricketers right you know um i've had, i've written pieces and then had cricket cricketers and cricket coaches come up and go are you sure and I'm like, well, I talked to these five people. And he's like, oh, God, I've been teaching it this way, right? It helps develop the game. So it was a great question. Thank you very much for that. In fact, uh, thank you to all the questions, as always. Uh, thank you to everyone uh, who supports us on Patreon. As I said before, if you want to support us on Patreon, it'll allow us to build this network as quick as we can. We're getting sponsors. Hopefully, we're getting some other funding coming in. But realistically, the more Patreon we can get, the, the more podcasts I can build, the more videos that we can do going forward. If you don't like Patreon, we also have Buy Me a Coffee. I've also got my emailer on the Substack where you can subscribe to that as well. You get a free subscription and you get, I don't know, about 60, 70% of the work for free. And then if you want everything that I write, um, there's a paid subscription portion of that one as well. But thank you to everyone who has supported us. Again, thanks to Manscaped, 20% off your Lawnmower 4.0, which is a, a brilliant device. And, and I don't say that lightly. I don't know what the evolution of ball shaving technology was, but I know that I've gone from basically... Bowling like Fred Spothers to bowling like Kikisa Rabada with my ball shaving, if that makes any sense. Anyway, thanks to everyone who came on the live chat. Remember, if you came in late, you can go to the Red Inca podcast and we try and put as many of these up on YouTube as we can, but sometimes they get a bit stuck behind more current videos. But thanks to everyone and I'll see you again soon. <laughs>